I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the keenest pleasures of my life has always been taking solitary walks in big cities. I love to walk in solitude, and I love to walk in cities in solitude, Paris, London, New York, my hometown of Montreal. And that, I think, depends on exactly that same axis that Hopper captures so perfectly and poignantly in his paintings. And that is the way that cities, more than any other places, by the nature of their multitudinous, uh, give us a special purchase on our own aloneness. Hi, and welcome to Alonement, the podcast about time alone and why it matters. I'm Francesca Spector, host of this podcast and author of Alonement, a book based on this very show. I'm also a reformed extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing benefits of spending time alone. Each week, I interview someone I'm curious about to discover what solo time means to them. In every conversation, we celebrate the unique benefits of time spent alone, regardless of your age, life stage, or relationship status. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. My guest for this week's episode is Adam Gopnik, a long-standing staff writer at The New Yorker and the award-winning author of a frankly intimidating number of books. Most recently, his 11th title, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery, which explores the process of learning a new skill. In a series of essays, Adam tries out everything from boxing to ballroom dancing in an attempt to break down the learning process from practical skills to emotional challenges. And then there was his recent Hollywood debut. Those who've seen the Oscar-winning film Tar might have also spotted Adam playing himself as an interviewer alongside Kate Blanchett in the film's opening scene. Today we're talking, of course, about solitude and how it's played out in Adam's writing career and life more broadly. As a true New Yorker, Adam tells me how his version of Alone Time manages to integrate a great deal of companionship too, from his love of working amid the hustle and bustle of others in his office days to the more collaborative strands of his career, including writing for musical theatre, which kind of sounds like a dream gig. Alone time for Adam is best spent pacing around a crowded city, listening to what he still refers to as a Walkman, alone in a crowd in something that sounds like a scene in a Woody Allen movie. 
He also shares with me how his childhood, growing up as one of six in a crowded, noisy house, has shaped his love of being around others in modern life, which led me to an on-the-spot, very unscientific hypothesis on how our siblings, or lack of them, affect our alone time needs. Finally, we discuss the beauty of solitude, as depicted by the art of Edward Hopper, which Adam and I share a love for. This episode is full of new interesting ideas about alone time and I hope you really enjoy it. This season is brought to you by West Lab, the UK's number one trusted bath salts brand. Their best-selling Dead Sea bath salt range contains minerals that come from the famous waters themselves. Fun fact, it's actually a lake, not a sea, that's found in the lowest point of the earth and was the world's first spa, visited by Cleopatra herself. Dead Sea Salt is a skin hero containing a unique blend of magnesium, calcium and potassium, which is brilliant for protecting and repairing your skin barrier and managing conditions like eczema, psoriasis, acne and sensitive skin, together with soothing any aching muscles. I'm also kind of in love with magnesium for its mood balancing qualities. It's nice to think that your mind and body are being looked after while you're soaking there in the tub. West Lab Dead Sea Bath Salts are vegan, cruelty-free and suitable for the whole family, including babies aged three months and up. Use the code ALONEMENT15 for 15% off when you spend £10 or more. T's and C's in the show notes. I'm somebody who in- inevitably and by, by of necessity spends a lot of time alone, as I'm sure you do, because we're writers and writing is a solitary task. I make writing into a less solitary task than many others because I don't like being uh, isolated when I write. I know many of my dearest friends who are writers, my friend Meg Wallitzer, the wonderful American novelist, uh, who's my wife's best friend, um, you know, is delighted to go to Yaddo or McDowell or one of those writers colonies where you can work in sylvan quiet. I would hate that. And you couldn't pay me enough to go up to the country and be in a room and write. I grew up with six brothers and sisters. Um, I'm accustomed to noise and rock music. I always keep my door open when we had, when the kids were living at home so they could come, come in at any time. Uh, so I, I, that kind of, um, solitude for work is not something I feel, um, a great need for. I like, uh, I like noise and I like company, but I love aloneness in the other sense that I love, um, uh, walking alone. One of the keenest pleasures of my life has always been taking solitary walks in big cities, not, not in the country, as Woody Allen says, nature and I are too. (laughs) But if I had to pick out moments of bliss, then one of the subjects of the real work, as you know, is how we get into what we think of as the flow state, how we get into a state of, of happiness. Happiness is always absorption, uh, heedless thoughtless in a certain sense absorption in something outside ourselves that's what the uh, the uh the great mystics and the great meditators recognize as the nature of enlightenment my son luke is a is a a serious meditator i am a uh, whatever the opposite of a serious meditator is a foolish meditator or an unreliable meditator but he does it uh seriously and he said to me once very movingly that the thing that you learn at the end of uh, of a you know long sessions of meditation is that and this was beautifully put the space says yes the space says yes in other words meaning that existence is in itself affirmative 
we bring suffering, desire, wants, needs to it. And those are like the little roiling waves on the, the surface of the ocean. But the ocean itself is always going to be the ocean. The space says yes, is the way he he put it poetically. And I find that the simple act of walking, and there is such a thing as walking meditation for those of us who are overly um, nervous types, is for me a way of being in a completely affirmative uh, environment. I Nothing I love so much than uh, when I'm done with my day's work and I can go out for a walk here in New York, up and down the avenues, into Central Park, across to the west side. In the old days, you could find, uh, you know, uh, pokey little bookstores and so on. There are fewer and fewer of those in New York. I was in London uh, not too long ago with the book, and I blessedly got free for a while. And I just walked from uh, from Chelsea up to uh, the Victoria and Albert and looked at the uh, the Raphael cartoons and uh, had my my what I still reference as my Walkman. It dates me back to the eighties. But I always love to walk with music. And that for me, that feeling uh, is uh, of walking with music, particularly kind of playlist of, of old songs I love. That for me is as close to bliss as I know. So that's my own particular purchase on alonement, uh, if you like. And it's essential to my well-being. Uh, but it's um, preparatory to or post uh, the act of writing. Writing for me is uh, is never successful when it's too... Uh, when it's too isolated, when it's too detached, if if I may say. When I joined The New Yorker 40 years ago, uh, I wrote in the office and that was, uh, and that was a pleasure of another kind. There was, not only was it before the days of laptops and computers, it was before the days of electric typewriters, at least in the offices of The New Yorker. So I wrote my whole first two years of work uh, at The New Yorker on a mechanical typewriter, banging out, you know, in the manner of the 1920s, um, sentence after sentence. Uh, and I love being in a, in a, in a, a quiet, but nonetheless still kind of thriving, uh, beehive of other writers. But, uh, uh, being alone to walk and listen to music for me is as essential to existence as sleeping or breathing. It's interesting. I think that you've almost been shaped by, you said that you were one of six, one of six yes. siblings. Yeah. It does correlate more so than most things when I have guests on this show and I've had over 75 guests now. And I think that the the pattern I'm seeing is the people most comfortable or indeed the people who sort of need pure alone time. I say pure in a room alone. They crave that. They are people who you know have grown up either as only children or with a sibling much older so they were by default alone <laughs> quite a bit there do you think that the way that you've almost adapted is to have this version of alone which still has uh, i guess a little bit of background noise do you think that is a product of how you grew yes, up I'm probably sure without much well, totally you know I, I there's um I, I saw a nice documentary about a kind of old school producer named jerry weintraub not long ago and he, like so many kids of his generation, has passed away now, grew up in a house in an apartment in Brooklyn where the adults played poker and argued all night long. And to the day of his death, he couldn't go to sleep unless he had the radio on because he needed that kind of ambient noise of adult conversation to lull him to sleep. And I'm a bit like that myself. You know, when I, I'm a terrible perpetual insomniac. And the one way I've found of getting back to sleep is is not to, you know, lie there and breathe, which is hopeless, 
but to uh, put on a podcast uh, like like your own, but particularly on a subject that I find intriguing but not agitating. And the two that I always come back to are American football and early Christian history. Those are two subjects I find intriguing but not agitating. I don't I don't have a big investment in either of them, big rooting investment. I'm just curious about them. So I listen to those and having all that extra noise in the room, conversational noise helps me sleep. And I'm sure it's tied to growing up in a big and argumentative family. Is that a, is that a sort of euphemistic way of saying you're into American football, but not quite that into it, that it would keep you up listening? for? The yeah, exactly. End? It's intriguing, but not agitating. If I were listening to political podcasts, I'd be jumping up and down all the time, enraged with the latest Trump atrocity. And uh, if I were listening to hockey podcasts, ice hockey, which is the being a Canadian is the sport I love most. I have such a powerful rooting interest in the Montreal Canadiens, which is our local team in Montreal, that I would be <laughs> agitated about that. I enjoy American football, but I don't have a particularly powerful rooting interest in it. So I can I, I don't get agitated by it. Early Christian history. I know it sounds like a bizarre pair <laughs> of passions <clears throat> or non-passions, impassions. But I'm fascinated by everything to do with the 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 birth of Christianity, the growth of Christianity, the relation of the Jewish sects, the Essenes and the and the the yeah the the Pharisees and so on, and all the mysteries and ambiguities about what happened at that time, I find fascinating. But I don't have a very strong rooting interest. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a. I'm as Jewish as you can be culturally and and in manners, but not uh, practicing uh, Jew at all. So again, I, it, American football and early Christian history for me have the same quality of being absorbing, but not agitating. And by listening to those podcasts at four in the morning, it helps me get to sleep. That's truly pointless advice for anyone who doesn't have my own peculiar psychological makeup, except if I may, having struggled with insomnia my whole life. I am married now for many a decade to a wonderful woman who is the world's champion sleeper, one of those people who can sleep anywhere at any time. In fact, it was one of the themes of my memoir about arriving in New York in our first 10 years here was her sleeping through things that when I was going crazy with activity. So she'll sleep through anything. I can't sleep at all. But the useful thing I have discovered in 50 plus years of insomnia is that as with so many things in life, the only cure for it is not recognizing it as an illness, is just being as uh, indifferent to it. You know, you're, you'll go to sleep when your mind is ready to go to sleep. And what we can't do is make ourselves go to sleep. And that's, uh, as I said, there's a certain kind of wisdom in that, that I, that I have very, it's taken me a long time and a hard time to learn, but I try to, I try to pass it on. So I'm going to move the topic along a little bit because I wanted to ask, so, writing the craft that we're sort of both united in doing for a living it can be notoriously quite a lonely thing to do like no matter how much you might be around people when you're getting absorbed on that sentence level when you're really thinking through ideas it does it does require a certain amount of solitude do you, do you ever wish that you sort of naturally had been drawn towards something a bit more sociable sure and it's one of the reasons why I love the theater and why I write for the theater. I've written for the musical theater now, often in the last 10 years. Like I did a whole show with the great composer David Shire. I'm in the middle of a new one with another wonderful Broadway composer, Andrew Lippa, and another one with Shire. And so, and I do love the uh, communality of the theater. When I was a kid, I was an actor. 
um, somebody just posted on Instagram to my shock an image of me playing um, in Brex Galileo rehearsing at the age of nine. Oh, I need um, to look that up. I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, so I'm very self-consciously acting. You can see in the photograph, I've got like an acting face on. Um, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I'm always drawn to that. Though I will confess that about usually about three days in, you know, the 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 perpetual uh, emotional drama of the theater, which is most often more intense and sometimes more interesting than the purported drama of the piece that you're working on, um, is both hugely seductive, because when you walk in in the morning, you're dealing with people and community, family, rivalry, unhappiness, temperament, terror, all those, all that good stuff. But then you get a little fed up. I'd get a little fed up at one. I want to be back just working on my on my laptop. I am one of the few writers I know, Francesca, and I shouldn't say this because I dare say it will curse me, who genuinely loves writing. I love the act of writing. It is not, um, uh, my critics would doubtless say it should be more difficult for me. If it were more difficult for me, the, the what I produce would be uh, would be less um, fatuous. But I, I I simply love writing and I, it's uh, I've always felt that way about it. It's gotten better as I've gone on. It's something that I actively uh, love doing. So I never find it to be, as I'm told many writers do, uh, uh, you know, debilitating, impossible, exhausting task. Maybe because, and if I have one piece of counsel to give to younger writers, it, it would be this. I, at, at a relatively early age, when I was still in my 20s, I discovered what every writer has to discover sooner or later, which is that writing is primarily and above all a physical challenge. The, the task of writing is to get it down. Your brain, as I always say to students, if I have any, and I don't usually, uh, the task of writing involves the recognition that your brain is smarter than your mind. That is, all of your sentences, your insights, your epiphanies, your endearments are already in place. And if you simply unlock the the barriers that that prevent you from doing it, if you treat the act of writing exactly the way you would treat going to the gym and riding on a stationary bike or doing a treadmill or whatever your for me it's it's actually biking around Central Park, whatever your particular uh, passion is physically, if you treat it that way, you find that you begin to to do the real work because the real work in writing is getting it down. You can always take something existing, something that exists and make it better. You can't take something that doesn't exist and make it and make it anything. So that business of simply spending four hours at a minimum a day, if you can, um, producing sentences I, is something that I started doing after with difficulty when I was in my 20s. And what I found is, is, is that you have um, mental, cognitive, if you like, literary aerobics that are just as real and just as powerful as the aerobics we arrive at by biking and treadmilling and running and so on. And you can literally feel them turn on. For me, it's usually about 25 minutes into the, into the day session where your, your cognitive breathing, so to speak, suddenly becomes much easier. Just the way that your physical breathing becomes easier as your aerobic system kicks in. Mm. And that's where the, the, that's where you, yeah, you have to reside. Once you make that transition, I always tell, try to tell young writers that, and you can't be therefore too judgmental about yourself. John Updike, the, who I think was the, who was in many respects my, 
magical mentor, uh, once talked about his admiration for Jack Kerouac. You know, Jack Kerouac who wrote On the Road and so on. And Updike and Kerouac would seem to be absolute bookends, totally reverse poles in the literary struggle because Kerouac was uh, notably uh, uh, slovenly and productive writer. And that was the aesthetic that he pursued, was was an anti-art aesthetic. And Updike was the artiest in the positive sense of all writers, the most sensually rhapsodic and um, lexically shimmering of writer I know. But he identified with Kerouac exactly as what they had in common was the desire to let the sentences come unspooling out and not to sit in judgment on your own work prematurely. And I think that that's a, that's a valuable thing. Shakespeare clearly wrote that way. I'm just reading right now my favorite book of the past few years, and I'm looking around, I can't find it here, which is Don Patterson's Commentary on Shakespeare's Sonnets. It's an absolutely wonderful book, which obviously reproduces all the sonnets. And what you become aware of is that Shakespeare was writing so freely when he was writing the sons. He picks up an idea. Oh, the lines on my loved ones, my lover's face uh, may appear, but the lines that I write about him in that, this case, most likely, are <coughs> will never be, will never disappear. And he plays with that metaphor and he gets it wrong and he can't quite land it. Finishes sentence on it. Start. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's another one, playing around with the same ideas and to see Shakespeare's mind at play in the sonnets and realize how in what an unheeded, unimpeded way he wrote is an encouragement to all of us less gifted but equally unimpeded writers so i i know that your writing routine is kind of amazing because i was listening to matthew stadlin's 
20 questions podcast which you were a yes. guest on uh, ahead of ahead of this podcast for research and you said that you write five or six hours a day without taking a break you have done since 1980 and you never take a day off are you scared of what might happen if you take a day off would that would that mean it's something you're thinking about rather than just doing like an exercise well, I will say, you know, a, a man on the podcast should not be considered on purely on oath. Obviously, I'd sometimes I'm forced to take a day off. I've been on a <clears throat> book tour these last uh, two months. So on days when I'm waking up at 5 a.m. to go from Cleveland to San Francisco, I don't always get my full time in. But when I'm home here in New York City uh, working, yeah, that's true. I do uh, write. Uh, for at least four hours a day, and usually five to six. When I say write, I, usually the the creative block, interestingly, because I think this is true right across all activities, is four hours. I think that's what you get uh, creatively. And then the other two hours are spent writing emails, doing podcasts, uh, revising the work that you've done before. Uh, but yes, it's true. And I, and I, it's, I know how hateful and annoying it, it may sound. Um, but it's true. I never take a day off. I work seven days a week. I work on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, but I, and I will tell you truly, Francesca, for me, it's not, it's never a burden. It's always a joy. I suppose I'm superstitious that if I ever stopped running, uh, the, the pavement would disappear beneath my feet. But as I say, for me, it's, uh, writing is breathing. Writing is loving. Writing is therapy. Writing is self-recognition, writing is sex, writing is everything in my life revolves around the the act of producing sentences. Um, W.H. Auden once said, and I think it was a memorable, and I think for some of us, true, true sense, that he got that sex for him always had to be intermediated by a sentence, that he found the sentences essential to the sex. I don't know if we all want to go that far, but I certainly think that, that's, uh, that that sense of being uh, dipped in ink, as Alexander Pope put it, is 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 vital to a writer. And um, uh, I do think that if you if you make writing a thing you do only on writing occasions, then you impede your own productivity. You know that it it's something you should be doing every day. Uh, just as you know, if you're a a marathon runner, you run every day and you, and you like it. Maybe marathon sure. runners don't run every day, but in my, <laughs> in my imagination, they do. Maybe they take occasional breaks too. Yes. Uh, well, I think there's something about, I've noticed a squeamishness, um, among so many writers about just calling ourselves a writer. And, you know, I, I've experienced that before, you know, even, you know, writing a book. It's like you, you, you've been like, Oh, yes, but that happened. However long ago, it's a bit like being an alcoholic. You've always, you, you sort of always an author, even if you don't feel like a writer. Uh, it never yeah. sort of expires. But I mean, the thing that's been game changing for me is I started a Substack, uh, about six months ago. And it oh, means wow. that it just means that every week I will have that very intense writing day, which is sort of frenetic and, and lovely. And I think it really, I don't know. There's something about uh, what was the wonderful Pope phrase you used about? Rolling in the ink or something like Dipped that. Dipped in ink. Dipped Pope, in ink. Um, Pope has a wonderful thing where he says, um, tell me, dear friend, what sin to me uh, unknown dipped me in ink, my parents or my own? And it's always been a favorite couplet of mine. In fact, I've sometimes thought if I do my, when I do my 
collected essays, I'll call it dipped in ink, collected essays of. But I think it's true, you know, that that we, um, I, I know it sounds ob- slightly obnoxious to say, oh, I, you know, I, I write all the time, but I do, you know, the other, um, not to put on airs about it, you know, the other um, constraint or impetus, I suppose is a better word, that I feel always is to make a living. You know, I make my living by writing. I support my family with my pen in the old fashioned sense. And though I've been blessed, truly blessed for a long time to write for the New Yorker magazine, which is a, not merely a home, but a kind of a country of which I am a, a soldier citizen. Nonetheless, I live in New York City and I have to, um, and I send my kids for good or ill to private schools or did, and I pay for the university education and so on. So I have to write all the time. I say that without shame, but with the, you know, what does Jesus say? You know, the, the, the craftsman should be, there's a better, he puts it, Jesus puts it better than I do. But basically that, that you should never apologize for your craft and for, for selling your craft, for being an artisan and a laborer. And that's uh, very much part of what I'm, I'm about. I have a main gig and many side gigs, and that's, uh, I think, an honorable way to, to make your way in the world. And of course, you're, you're very well known as well as an art critic. I was reading an essay that you wrote for the New Yorker last year about Edward Hopper's uh, exhibition in the Whitney, yes. which I was lucky enough to go and see as well last summer when I was there. And the, the title is The Delight of Edward Hopper's Solitude. I love Edward Hopper's work because I think that generally when we talk about the idea of a solitary individual or kind of loneliness, even looking up stock images to describe the state of being alone, you get all these depressing bleak images. And yet what Edward Hopper's art has in common, it's these lonely seeming individuals, either in a public place, like in the famous Nighthawks, or alone in a room, but you get the sense that they're part of the greater metropolis of, I guess, New York is the general just where, where most of his stuff is. Um, but you, but this title, The Delight of Edward Hopper's Solitude, what, what makes solitude so delightful in his art? I'm glad you saw that piece. That piece was written under the impetus of immediate experience. Um, I had been just recovered from my only bout with the virus, with COVID, which was not very serious, but it kept me locked inside for a bit. And it was a uh, way we were, we had delayed my wife's birthday for a week so I could recover and we could go out the following weekend. So I had the bliss of negativity, of testing negative and being back out in the world. And it was also the first time I'd felt since the descent of the, the, the drab curtain of COVID on New York, that New York was really coming back to life. People were filling those galleries at the Whitney Museum where the Hopper show was largely unmasked and largely unafraid for all the variety of reasons that we can enumerate. And I suddenly became aware exactly of how much, of course, Hopper is the great poet of alonement in your sense uh, and uh, takes an enormous sensual pleasure in it, doesn't depict it as a, it depicts it as a melancholy state, but there's something very positive about melancholy states in our lives. Those moments when we're balanced between kind of pensive contemplation and uh, inward directed uh, pleasure. And I, I suddenly realized that the, that Hopper's purchase on that solitude in New York depended on New York not being a solitary place. And it was exactly those little epiphanies of vision, those moments of vision within New York, the beautiful images of, you know, the elevated train passing by 
uh, window where the summer breeze is blowing open a curtain and you just see a woman climbing in or out of her clothes. It's not, it's voyeuristic in a certain sense, but it's, it, it's, it's voyeurism without lechery of a kind. It's the, the easy voyeurism of, of city life. And it depends on the crowd to get the, to the aloneness. And we had been deprived of the experience of crowds for two years, shockingly, unprecedentedly. And now here the crowd was back. And with the crowd came our purchase again on the condition of solitude. And I found that hugely moving and, and, uh, and salutary at, at that moment. So I, I, I wrote about it. And I do think coming back to something we were talking about before, I was talking about how though I don't like to write in solitude, I love to walk in solitude and I love to walk in cities in solitude, Paris, London, New York, my hometown of Montreal. And that I think depends on exactly that same axis that Hopper captures so perfectly and poignantly in his paintings. And that is the way that cities more than any other places by the nature of their multitudinous, uh, give us a special purchase on our own aloneness. And you're speaking, I, w- I wonder, because you're, you're speaking um, in a sort of collective way there, but I wonder also kind of having the conversation we had earlier, how for you quite specifically, the way that you like to be alone is within within crowds, within this sense of crowdedness. Was, was the pandemic very hard for you on that level that your kind of more natural, comfortable state of being alone wasn't really able to be facilitated yes that that was true i mean i went a bike on my bike cycling because that seems safe but i had a very i was blessed i had a very good pandemic my wife and i were alone in this uh, apartment here in new york which is blessedly fairly spacious and we were happy in each other's company i was happy making dinner every night calling in uh food from around the city and all that we were very lucky and then we watched as so many people did an enormous amount of long form television in foreign languages. We watched the Danish series, the Icelandic series, the Israeli series, uh, the, uh, Italian series, the French series, Le Bureau. So we were both having the, the joy of secondhand cosmopolitanism, by the way, of all that long form foreign television and, uh, intimacy of being, uh, at home. It was like a monastic life. And there's a lot to be said for a monastic life. The funny thing about a monastic life is, that it makes the days longer rather than shorter because it fills the day with so many uh, essential activities. Uh, so we had a good pandemic in that way. But it was only when I went to the Hopper show and was once again, for the first time in a couple of years, really in the presence of a crowd, did I realize, just in your terms, Francesca, how much I missed that dialogue of crowdedness and aloneness, which gives New York its special uh, its special poignance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, New York and London to an extent too. Um, I think there are maybe nuances there. I think that almost there's a sort of British lack of confidence sometimes in occupying a space alone. So there's, it, it's very much more natural in, in New York for a New Yorker to sit at a bar and that be this glamorous solitary figure. Whereas here, I think that it doesn't seem to have the same, even the same infrastructure where that seems legitimized. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I hardly think of myself as a glamorous figure, but it's certainly true that you can walk into any New York coffee shop or bar later and be alone and nobody finds it remotely puzzling. Pubs are not places made for aloneness. Their public nature is inscribed into their 
into their title. And I, I, I suspect even especially for women being alone in a pub is not a wholly uh, comfortable uh, uh, feeling. I, I suspect that used to be true in bars here too. But yes, New York lends itself to that special feeling of social solitude, of being both within the crowd and apart from the crowd uh, in a way that perhaps no other city does as much. It's certainly no other city has uh, inspired so much good art about that emotion of social solitude, whether it's in Hopper's paintings or Frank O'Hara's poems, um, as New York has done. Are you familiar with the, I think it's the Monologue Museum in Shanghai? No, I've never been to China at all. No, tell me about it. Well, I was I was listening to a kind of future trends talk about solitude in public spaces the other day, and they they mentioned this as a sort of case study. I mean, I think none of us have been to China in a very long time. It's, it only just reopens to tourists, sadly. But I would love to go because it effectively it, it the monologue museum is created so that it for an experience to be experienced alone. And I think I've never really heard of anything any public space being designed in the same way. But it's the way that. It is. It's these big sort of quite minimalist spaces where an individual feels comfortable experiencing it alone. I mean, art galleries, by their nature, they are sort of spaces where even if you're with a companion, it's acceptable to be in a different room and no one yes. really knows if you're accompanied. That's a that's a lovely observation, which just I never thought about that. It's quite true. When you go on a date to a museum, you don't accompany your your pursued one room to room you you have the romance of bumping into each other as you as you experience the show no one's quite written about that that's a nice uh, that's a nice thought no uh, that's making me <laughs> reflect i think it's gone both ways for me actually and but it's a nice litmus test though i suppose to see how much you can give each other space and yes uh, exactly <laughs> i i have the habit which i is maybe a bad habit but i think is a you know what the french call a deformation professionnelle a professional deformation of when I visit a museum show, I like to walk rapidly to from right through it just to get a sense of the map of it, and then go back and start uh, sorting it through and look more and look more closely. I think one of the things that can be a bit of a trap in museum going is you it, you expend all your emotional and and optical energy on the first couple of rooms, which almost invariably are the least interesting because they're usually devoted in a monographic show anyway to juvenilia. And uh, uh, when the good stuff comes after. So I like to know kind of, you know, where's when's the hot stuff coming? When when is the really hot stuff coming? And then I can budget my attention more parsimoniously to get to the hot stuff sooner. That's a great technique. Uh, well, I think I'll be trying that. And would you ever permit would you ever permit someone to sort of, would you know, if you, if you were going with with someone else to uh, to a gallery, would you ever want to do that as a sort of two person group enterprise? Oh, or is it very yeah, much? Love, sure, I love going to going to shows with you know that's how i met salman rushdie i'm gonna drop oh. another name you know once you cross the social security barrier <laughs> once you get past 65 it's no longer name dropping it's it's memoir creation right we never mind when an old geezer um recollects um the famous people that he's known we hate it when a when a, a young uh aspirant does it but when you cross a certain barrier you're allowed to uh it's no longer name dropping. It's just um, it's just memoir writing. So that's how I met Salman Rushdie at the height of the uh, the fatwa. A mutual friend said, "Would you take uh, Rushdie through the Matisse exhibition?" It was a great Matisse retrospective um, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1992. And I said, "Yes, of course, I'd be delighted to." And so, with m- many uh, machination and and 
false start and, and, uh, you know, dummy car, I met someone and we walked through the Matisse, uh, show together and I talked, talked my way through it with him and his then wife, Elizabeth. And, uh, it was an extraordinary experience, uh, and partly because of how utterly, uh, blithe and, uh, jolly, uh, Salman was about seeing the Matisse show. You know, there was no sense of beleaguerment about it. My, it was an act of courage to conceal his beleaguerment, no doubt. But I loved walking through the, you know, mit, you know, making Salman Rushdie under this hideous fatwa and Matisse spooling out his Edenic visions of the South of France and making them collide. It was a source of great pleasure for me. This has been such a great conversation. I'm going to, I, I normally ask this question sort of towards the beginning, but I'm going to turn things on their head and ask you to finish. We started talking about your alonement. I would love to know just what the word alone means to you. Take any positive or negative connotations out of it. Well, having grown up in a big family alone still has a rhapsodic sensual edge for me, much though I love the company of my own family uh, and invite them in to my my working space um relentlessly and endlessly still nonetheless when i do find myself alone i had to live alone in a single and ed- very edward hopper like room in uh, new haven when i was working on a musical show a few years ago and i found it thrilling i i found that those moments of uh, self-reliance not to say self-absorption tickling but on the whole, as I said before, for me, the richest concept of being alone is being alone in a crowd. I'm a city boy. And for me, there's nothing that gives me more pleasure than spending a day, a Saturday or a Sunday, where I have some general destination, a gym to go boxing in, a steam bath to share with uh, fat, naked Russians, uh, whatever it might be. The the long walk towards that destination, usually, as I say, in we're blessed to live in what I still call the Walkman age, accompanied by the music of my teenage years, James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and Van Morrison, is for me the closest thing I know to bliss. It's not, it's it's aloneness, certainly, but it's not loneliness. It's solitude within a city, and I think that that's one of the one of the paradoxical pleasures of being uh, an urban dweller. It was such a joy to speak to Adam again. We actually first met earlier this year when I interviewed him for Jewish Book Week. And at the time, quite a few of you got in touch saying you'd love to hear him on the show. So here it is. It's so good to hear how much he still loves the process and craft of writing 40 years into his career and how he's adapted as someone who's clearly a bit of an extrovert to make it into a more sociable process. This episode was also a bit of a love letter to the unique qualities of New York as a place to be alone in a crowd, or solitude and the city, as I've playfully named this episode. I have a little bonus treat for you as well. I really enjoyed hearing about Adam's love of walking around Central Park listening to music, so after our recording, I asked him to recommend some of his favourite songs to listen to from the artists he mentioned, like Joni Mitchell and James Taylor, and then I popped them all into a Spotify playlist. Take a look at the show notes if you'd like to take a listen to that. I actually got the idea from Susan Kane, another guest on this season who made a playlist to go along with her latest book, Bittersweet. The other thing to add is that if you'd like to stay in the loop and receive bonus content from the show, as well as my personal writing and reflections, do sign up to my email newsletter, which you can do at francescaspector.com. 
www.substack.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.